Welcome to this episode of Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose with Ellen Barton, where you'll hear thought-provoking discussion, inspirational stories, and get action tips for creating the life of your dreams. Hello and welcome to Ready, Set, Grit, Your Life on Purpose, a weekly podcast where we explore the secrets behind living an inspired and extraordinary life. I'm Ellen Barton and today my guest is Jennifer Sutton. Jennifer is a trainer, life coach, and martial arts teacher who currently lives in upstate New York. She works with people holistically on their mind, body, and spirit, and helps them move towards a a place of peace, self-confidence, and joy. Jennifer, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is great. And you have a a very interesting and... um, inspirational story at the end of it. It's a little, uh, it takes a little while to get there. It's a little scary. But um, I want to jump in and have you tell that story because one of the things that's really compelling about it is that your life work is focused on helping people and it's spiritual and you've got all these loving principles But your story, where it all started, stems back to some very dark and tragic events. And that all started back when you were in college? Yep, yep, when I was a a junior on my study abroad. Yeah, so why don't you tell us what happened? Well, um, I'm one of those people that doesn't like to do what everybody else does. (laughs) I'm I'm that kind of, you know, the outlier, I guess, is how you call me in in analytics. and I wanted to go someplace that not everybody else goes when I chose my study abroad location. And I didn't know where that was. I just knew what it wasn't. And one day I was looking at the course catalog. And as I was driving to my sophomore year of college, and I saw that we had a partner college in Liberia. So I said, gosh, I think that's where I'm going to go. That's, it just felt like that was my next step that I was supposed to take. And it took me all year to get my uh, financial aid transferred from the university over to Liberia to get that approved. I sat outside the dean's office every day and did my homework until they decided that, yes, I could go. And they finally did. And so off I went to Liberia, West Africa. And there isn't a lot that you there aren't. There, there weren't like, you know, the, the Lonely Planet Guide to Liberia or um, really anything to give you advice on going to Liberia. There was very little. And I also didn't want to get too much because I wanted a little bit of ignorance. I wanted it to be just whatever it was in front of me. So I, I went and it was, uh, I think, one of my best life choices. A lot happened in that period while I was there. I had malaria and I was in a car accident and I had a major infection and I lost my hearing and I ended up with a bad back until I learned about chiropractic. But (laughs) when I learned about chiropractic seven years after the trip, that was fixed, so that was good. But a lot of long-term life impacts happened during that period and still I say it was the best choice of my life. So. Pay attention to that when you get a gut feeling of where you want to go in your life and it, you just feel it solidly, do it and, and see what happens. Even if there might be some tragedy or trauma along the way, there might be something in it for you. And I think that that's very much the case for Liberia with me. 
the um, the first thing that was a big issue or a big adventure wasn't even the car accident. It was the um, on, on a night that uh, another student and I left the university. The university was two hours up country, so it was a very safe, sheltered location and with wonderful, loving people all around, village people that were, the, the people who lived in the village and the people who lived on the university were all just really the the example of love. And so I, I loved being up there, but we had to go to the city to buy some supplies for our classes. So we took the a taxi two hours down into the city and got a hotel and we went to the name of a hotel that my roommate had told me, my, my beautiful roommate Miata, said to stay at the Christina Hotel. So we did. We, we told the taxi cab, take us to the Christina Hotel. And they did. And we didn't learn until later that that was the wrong Christina Hotel. There are two. <laughs> uh -oh. So we already were starting off in the wrong part of Monrovia, and we didn't know that. But, you know, we thought we were following in directions and, and just going step by step. We got to the hotel and we got our room, and again, I had a gut feeling, and my gut feeling was that something was going to be wrong that night, that there was that there was a danger. And so I hid my money and our 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 passport, which wasn't really a passport. Your passports were taken away in 1989, Liberia. I don't know if it's true now. But back then, your passport disappeared the day you arrived in Liberia and reappeared the day you left. They were protecting it for us. And we didn't know that. We just we thought it was just in process that whole time. <laughs> and that it, we were just so grateful when it showed back up when we needed it. But I, looking back now, we understand what they were doing. Um, so all we had was a piece of paper, with, which was a letter from the university saying who we were and why we were there. So we um, hid all of that stuff in our room. And, and here's another thing when I teach self-defense now that I make sure and point out that when you have a gut feeling about something, again, you listen to it, right? I listened to it to go to Liberia. And then I heard this gut feeling that said, there's danger tonight. And what did I do? I hid my money, right? Did I stop from going out? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been the better choice or the, the, you know, follow your gut? There's danger out there tonight. I should stay in. Oh, no, 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 no. I was 20. <laughs> uh-huh. We've all been there. I was there. 20, yeah. fearless, indestructible. <laughs> So I went out and, and honestly I don't remember if it was me still wanting to go out or me wanting to go out because the person I was with wanted to go out and, and she didn't dig the, the whole follow your gut thing. And honestly I didn't follow my gut then either. I didn't know, I didn't have an awareness of that. I did do that hiding of the money but that's a little different than following your gut on a regular aware basis. So anyway we went out and we were looking for the club that my wonderful roommate Miata had told me about. She's a, I, I would love to find Miata these days. So if anybody knows Miata from Liberia, from Miata Banyan, please do let me know. She disappeared in the, in the coup years after, so I haven't been able to reach her. But I'm hoping she escaped and is someplace and can hear this someday. Um, but she recommended we go to the, the club that was created for 
a United Nations meeting. And so it was supposed to be a really fancy, nice club. And she said it would be really great for us to go to. So, so we went out looking for this club, not knowing that we were and what we should have done was get in a taxi and tell the person we want to go to this club and let them take us there. But no, no, no. We were adventuresome um, college students in a foreign country. We just went wandering the streets. <laughs> and again, we started off in the not best part of Liberia or Monrovia when we started the adventure. And so we get to a street and it's called G-U-R-L-E-Y Street. And that to me was the last name of one of my best friends from elementary school and and before that we've been friends since we were four we went to the same preschool and her family name is the girlies so i thought oh this must have been general Gurley in the army or something when monrovia was founded so let's go up this street because it feels good because it has to do with papa Gurley, right um well no it didn't it should have been spelled any guesses any guesses how would you have spelled Gurley Street a different way in a bad part of town? Oh, so it's a Gurley Street. Ah, G-I-R-L-I-E would have been the better uh-huh. spelling. <laughs> Again, we were completely ignorant, completely clueless. Um, and we thought we were following, you know, this path of my friend's family, you know. A lot of, a lot of, Liberia is named after American citizens because Monroe is from President Monroe and so a lot of the streets and towns are named after the Americans that helped found Liberia. Um, So we, you know, that was our perspective going down that street and we're walking along like you should never do when you're a tourist in a foreign country, standing very close together, looking confused and lost, looking at all the names on the the street signs or the the neon lights or not so much not like neon in um, New York Times Square or anything but but there was some bright light and and we were trying to read the names and, and so we looked like clueless tourists which again you shouldn't do in the bad part of town of any city anywhere um, <laughs> but we did we were clueless people so <laughs> it fit <laughs> And um, we saw a soldier off to the side, and that's not unusual there either. Um, Soldiers with rifles and automatic rifles on their shoulders, perfectly normal all through downtown because it was a military rule. It was theoretically democratic, but it wasn't truly. And there was unrest at the time we were there. Again, we didn't know that, but we just saw a soldier, so that was fine. And we kept going, but then the soldier said something, and when... When I teach self-defense, one of the things that you teach is if, you're, if your heckles go up, if you get that, uh-uh, don't go there feeling, you shouldn't go there. And um, I didn't get quite that feeling, but one of the other techniques that people that are going to try and take advantage of you in some way is to bring you closer to them, to, to close the distance, either by asking for um, a light for their cigarette or for the time or something that makes you slightly distracted and makes you either move closer to them or gives them time to move closer to you. I didn't know any of that when I was there. Now that I teach self-defense, I know all of this and I look back at the experience, I'm like, it was classic. It was absolutely classic. He's watching us. We're looking clueless. We look helpless. We were. Um, (laughs) We were showing what we really were. And um, and so he does the, the technique, which is one of the four Ds, distraction and distance, and, and, and says something to us. And we don't understand him because he's speaking, 
either Liberian English or Kron, which was the ruling party's language. There are 16 made tribes in Liberia, and one of them was in the ruling party at the time, and that was the Kron people. And um, and I didn't speak Kron, and I was only it was only my my first week there. I think that was at well, no, I think it was my first week without the intro person. So it might have been my third or fourth week there, probably my third weekend. So I didn't know Liberian English yet either, and it moves really fast. So <laughs> so if you don't, it's it's a language that has some English in it, but it's mixed with a lot of other things. So um, so I don't know exactly what he said. So us being law-abiding people walked closer to the soldier, right? That's what you would do to... If, so, if a soldier speaks to you on the street and you don't understand, you move closer to sure. find out what he's saying. So um, it didn't occur to me that he's a soldier with an M, and he has an M16 over his shoulder, he has no shirt on, and he has um, fatigue pants. So, so to me, he looks official because they don't always wear full uniforms in Liberia because of heat and also cost, I believe, of, of outfitting a full army. So... Um, Anyway, we moved a little closer, and then all of a sudden, we were in the front seat of a taxi cab. And how that happened, I cannot tell you. It went so fast from this, the thing that I remember of taking a step toward the soldier, and then suddenly, we're in the front seat of a taxi cab. So somehow, he signaled the cab while we were walking toward him and opened the front door and shoved us in. That's the only way that could have happened, because because there is no memory of him saying, okay, now get in the cab. <laughs> mm. There was none of that. So so then suddenly the door was closed next to me and um, the, the front seat went, I call him Taxi Man because I don't know his name. So Taxi Man driving and then my friend in the middle and then me on the outside window side of the, the front seat. And the soldier, I call him Soldier Man, because <laughs> again, I don't know his name. <laughs> so Soldier Man was in the back seat, and um, there was also another woman in the back seat that was already in the cab when he pulled this move, and he had the cab start immediately, and, and she's like screaming in the back, like, I'm guessing she said, let me out, let me out, but I couldn't tell what she was saying, because moments later, she got out, and, and the door and the cab sped off again. And so here I am in this cab with what I'm assuming is um, he's been labeled in my 20-year-old brain as a bad guy. <laughs> now, now I think of it a little differently when um, when I teach self-defense. He's just called the threat. So, um, so now the soldier man is the threat behind us in in the seat, and he of course has the advantage because he's taking us someplace, and that is something you never ever ever want to do is get in a car with anybody that wants to take you someplace. There are different kinds of predators, and most predators want just something from you right there on the street, which is your money, your purse, something like that. If they put you in a car or tell you to drive your own car someplace else, then they're a different kind of predator. And um, they're the more dangerous kind of predator to your well-being, not just to your wallet. So I didn't know any of this then, um, but of course, my instinct was this is bad. <laughs> I'd seen a few movies, you know. Um, <laughs> so, so we're driving through downtown Monrovia at this point, and um, 
and I see the sign that says United Nations Way, and I know that the U.S. Embassy is on United Nations Way because I'd written a letter to them when I first came to Monrovia to tell them that I was going to be a student up in upcountry and just to let them know there was an American student there. And we all did that as a, as a form of protocol. So I said, text me and text me and take us, take us to the embassy, take us to the embassy. And um, at this point, the taxi man was saying a mantra of don't want no trouble, don't want no trouble, don't want no trouble, because of course he has to stay in that city after we're gone. So he's the one who's going to face any consequences with that soldier. If he acts the hero, what happens to him and his family? So in, at the time, I was pretty angry with them <laughs> for, not at, for not taking me to safety. But when I look back, I think he would have suffered a lot more, and that soldier would have known where his whole family lives. And so it wouldn't have just been him acting the hero. It could have been played out against his entire family. So I could see self-preservation at work. Um, so he keeps driving, and the soldier is saying stuff in the back seat, but I can't understand it. So he, he just sounds angry and a really low guttural voice, which of course um, triggers fear in me and my friend. And then he reaches forward and grabs her shoulder and tries to pull her to turn to look back at him. At least that's what I think he was doing. But she sat rigid and wouldn't look back. And both of us were wearing our Liberian finest clothes. Um, we'd just bought either that day or the day before in the market. So um, our Liberian clothes are really light cotton and not double seamed like, cause they're made, they're hand sewn. So they're beautiful, but they're not durable, you know, like what we're a little more used to here in the US. And so when he grabbed her shoulder and tried to turn her to look toward him, her clothes ripped oh, and no. her whole, right. So her entire shoulder was exposed and, and her, um, her shirt was falling forward. So her breast was slightly exposed or could have been if, if he was in the front looking back, but she was still facing forward. So he couldn't see most of that as my guess. Because um, that wasn't my focus, but I felt her fear notch way up. You know, it's just it just went through the roof, and she started crying hysterically. And so then, through this whole thing so far, the taxi man has been doing this underlying mantra, saying "Don't want no trouble, don't want no trouble, don't want no trouble." And now he adds, "Don't cry, Missy, Missy, don't cry, Missy, Missy, don't want no trouble, Missy, Missy, don't cry, Missy, Missy." So that is like underlying sound through this entire adventure. So, so imagine that playing in the background while I story. Okay. <laughs> he just never stopped. That was like, oh my goodness. That was that was his his yeah. It was like his ongoing mantra through the whole thing. Don't cry, Missy, Missy. Don't cry, Missy, Missy. Don't want no trouble, Missy, Missy. Don't cry, Missy, Missy. <laughs> All through it, and he's just driving, you know, and and the, you know, soldiers still behind us trying to get what he wants. The only word I understood, at least I think I understood, was the word 80. So it's possible he was asking us for money or he was telling the driver to go someplace that had 80 in the address or I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but, if, but if you have good intentions, you don't take people, you don't, you know, take people in an empty cab out to a dark island. That's not really where you would take them if you had good intentions. 
So um, <laughs> he wasn't trying to, you know, rescue us from the 80 bad guys, you know. <laughs> right, right. So he takes us over to um, a, a place that I recognized from our, our intro to Liberia because it's like in the, in the U.S. when the pilgrims came across from Europe, they landed at Plymouth Rock. And there's still the big rock that says 1620 on it in Massachusetts. And um, I grew up in Bedford, Massachusetts, so every time family came, we went to Plymouth Rock <laughs> and showed them the rock. <laughs> and when we first went to Liberia, we would think of as a national park, but their version, that has a rock and uh, a place where they landed when the freed slaves, from, freed slaves from the U.S. first landed in Liberia to form the country of Liberia. And so I recognized that this was that island that we were going to. It's an island off the coast of Monrovia. And um, at least this is how I remember all of this. This is, you know, this all happened in 1989. So here's my disclaimer that anything that seems a little crazy that, you know, if you look it up on the online, I've never looked up online to see their rock. Um, this is all the, all what I remember of that night. So that, that rock area um, that I believe I was at was closed because it's a daytime um, park and it was dark and we got to this area where there was nobody else about a, maybe a mile back I had seen a street light with a couple of men standing under it but it was a ways back um, and so we get to this spot and I'm and still don't cry Missy Missy is happening and and I'm just trying to figure out how am I gonna get out of this situation and I have no idea none whatsoever and I know that even without the gun, this guy could totally have overpowered us. He was huge. He was, to me, I remember him like Rambo, you know, so. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, huge, my gosh. Huge chest and, um, and the M16 over the shoulder, but the Liberian version. Um, and so we get to this spot, and he says something to the driver, and the driver stops. And that's when I realize, oh, this is, this is a decision point. <laughs> this is a what does Jen do to get out of this situation point and I start yelling from from the soul level which is how I teach um, when you when you teach martial arts you learn something called the Kia and it's a, a way of breathing when you yell and it gives you more power if you take it from your from your your center than if you yell from your lungs or from your throat and so um, I didn't know that I was doing that, but that's what I was doing naturally. So when I got to martial arts class 10 years, not 10 years later, five years later, um, when I started martial arts, I was like, oh, this is easy because <laughs> I had already done it. So uh -huh. <laughs> I, knew, I knew how to access that. I was also in high school. Um, I was captain of my sports teams, not because I was a phenomenal player, but because I was the loudest one on the field so I could get the message across on the basketball court or the field or wherever I was to to tell them what to do next. So um, so I have lungs. <laughs> I've got the ability to scream. And so I just started screaming at the, you know, from, from a real point of fear deep inside, help. That's, I didn't know then that you should yell fire. 
you know, that's the that's what you're told to yell now because everybody's afraid of fire and they'll come running to see how bad it is and put it out. Help people it's it's um it's not specific enough. People don't know what that means or if they're the ones who need to help. But with a fire, everybody needs to help. So um so future tip for you. <laughs> Thank you. Use help. Appreciate it. I mean use fire, not help. Yes. But I didn't know that, so I just yelled help, and and even though I was afraid, I still had this level of trust, and I didn't know that I had it, but but it's held me through my whole life, this, this trust that life supports me. And um, so, in fact, what my, my class now that I teach self-defense, the not physical self-defense class, I teach an online self-defense class that is called Trust Life. I used to call it intuitive self-defense, but... But I realized what I'm really teaching people is how to trust life and giving them tools on how to feel safer in the world so that they can relax and trust life a little bit more. But that was part of my process there, and I, I just didn't know it. It was, again, life showing me what I needed to learn. So I yelled help as loud as I could, and even though there was no obvious person that could possibly help, we, it, we were what I thought was completely alone out on a dark island, you know? that was closed for the night. So I wouldn't expect to find anybody there. But I just kept yelling. The soldier soldier man gets out of the back seat and comes to my side of the, the car and wants to open the door and get me and my friend out. And I know that that is the worst choice for me. <laughs> if, if I have a choice in the matter, getting out with the man with the M16 is not not one of the, the, the high point choices. So I do whatever I can to not get out, and there isn't very much I can do to not get out. I'm still yelling help. Taxi man still has the mantra going over there with don't cry, Missy Missy, don't cry, Missy Missy. <laughs> don't want no trouble, Missy Missy. And I'm yelling help, help. <laughs> and soldier man comes around, and he reaches for the, the door handle to open the door, and me being absolutely brilliant, um, <laughs> I reach out and slam my hand down on the um, the lock. It's 1989. They still have those button locks, you know, that are on the edge that yeah, you can see. Yeah. So, so they're not the ones that are hiding on the, the side of the doors like they do now. But it was the old-fashioned button lock that looks like a nail. So I just slammed it down. And... Um, in Liberia, there's always something, at least one thing wrong with every car. It's perfectly normal. Um, and this car had no window, so I couldn't roll up the window and protect oh, no. us that way. Um, so, so there's this open window, soldier man, and he reaches out and unlocks the lock. And then reaches for the door handle again. And I lock the lock. <laughs> and we go back and forth. <laughs> it was pretty funny, you know? I mean, if you look back at it now, it's like we played this little lock-unlock game, and then he got smart, and he grabbed my hand. So then that, in, in martial arts and in self-defense, we talk about how many weapons you have at once. So then each of us had one weapon taken away from us because they were engaged with each other. My one hand and his one hand were now out of out of play but we both still had one more hand and so with our one hands we kept playing the button game <laughs> <laughs> oh 
Okay. All the while screaming help and all the while um, my friend crying and and just so upset. And then the next person back, the taxi man, doing his don't cry, missy, missy mantra. So this is all happening. I would love to make a movie of this because it would be kind of, um, it would be exciting, you know, to, to hear all of these different sounds and all of it happening at once. They would never believe that the, the in a movie these days, they would never believe that the button thing would work. They, you know what I mean? They, uh-huh. The people in the audience would say, oh, come on, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> but it worked long enough. To me, it felt like at least five minutes of playing this game. Um, to me, it felt more like an eternity because it was the pause. It was the pause of, of, of safety or not safety in my head. So, um, so I played that game with all my heart and soul. <laughs> like, sure. you know, um, what's that game? Bop the Gophers or whatever, you know, <laughs> uh-huh, it was uh-huh. like, ultra focused on bopping that gopher um and then all of a sudden out of the darkness walked a man and he said what is going on here in enough in good enough english that i could understand it i understood that he was even though he was unarmed skinny little guy (laughs) not not somebody that would be able to take on rambo but he he taught me presence and that's one of the things i teach in self-defense is how you carry yourself, how you speak, and how you address other people is your presence. And this man had power in his presence. And I don't know if he was terrified or if he was completely chill, but he seemed completely chill and in control of the situation. And he said to the soldier, or he, to me, it sounded like he was berating the soldier. And parts of it I could understand saying, these are American girls. Um, We don't harm American girls. Uh, America does good things for us. America supports Liberia. Those were just little snippets that I think I was getting. Again, Mm -hmm. it was not the best English. Um, It was way better than anybody up to that point. So (laughs) it felt really good. He he goes back and forth with the soldier a little bit. I can't understand a word of what the soldier says. And finally, the soldier, or finally, the um, he says he's from immigration. That's what he told me. Uh, or maybe he told the soldier. I'm not sure. Um, and he said, the soldier just wants to see your paperwork. And I was like, that's uh-huh. why he brought to a dark island. I gotcha. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think so. But to me, I think when I, again, when I look back and I know how things work in male culture and in um, monkey dance, male dominance um, patterns, he could come in and be an authority figure over, immigration is over the army. So he had to choose a role that was where he would be in charge of the soldier, even if he wasn't in the army. And and he did very well. Um, and... And then I think that the reason why he said that was to save face, to give the soldier a way to save face. So instead of him accusing him of a crime there out in the dark, this man who has no weapon and no no strength, obvious anyway, no obvious strength, um, took control of the situation and gave the soldier an opportunity to save face 
and gave us an opportunity to get back to our hotel by us saying our paperwork is, is at our hotel. We were told never to take it with us. He said, okay, we go back to the hotel and we'll look at your paperwork. And so that theoretically resolved the situation immediately. And the immigration guy gets in the back seat and then the soldier guy gets in the back seat. So now it's taxi man, my friend, and then me in the front. And then right behind my friend is the immigration man or behind the taxi man and my friend is the immigration man and behind me is the soldier which I don't really like. I at least liked him when he was in the middle so I could see him. I'm still hoping that this immigration guy is our, our, our gift from God, you know? And so we start driving and we come to a stop sign and I hear the soldier say something in his guttural, angry voice. Um, <laughs> sounds like to me, you know? But it, he's speaking words, I just can't understand them. What he said, according to the immigration guy, was that he didn't think it was safe for the three of us to be in the front seat and he thought I should come to the back seat because that would be safer. Obviously that's not really what he's getting at in that moment um, and I, I knew immediately that he just wanted me to come back and sit next to him. I, I, was, I, I grew up a really nice person. Um, <laughs> I was the, the one who never said anything mean about or to people. Um, I, I was everybody's friend in high school. I was friends with all the different cliques and that's just my, my nature is to be the nice person until you cross me. <laughs> and he'd crossed me. And um, so I got out of the front seat and I was being obedient to the immigration man because I didn't want to make his life harder. I wanted to make this whole thing work. But there was no way in heck that I was going to get back and sit next to that soldier. So I get out of my seat, and the logical thing would be for me then to just get in the car right behind that seat, right? I close my front door. He opens the door so that I can get in next to him. I grab the door, and I slam it in his face. <laughs> and I say something you probably don't want me to say on a podcast. So... Um... <laughs> And I think it's probably the first time in my entire life that I used that language. But it was, it was, it just came out. It was what needed to be said. I slammed the door and then I was angry. You know, that was like that last command of everything made me really angry. Before that, I was in, like, I wasn't angry, but I was, I was aware and I was on it. But then that, that clicked me into anger. And anger can be very powerful if it's used in a good way. And I thought that was a good way. So <laughs> it feels good now. Um, so then I walked around the car and opened the other door and the immigration man is sitting there and I say, move over. Uh, Cause I wasn't in a good mood by then. Um, <laughs> and so he looked at me like, ah! <laughs> and both of them moved over. <laughs> That's I funny. Said, oh, okay. Now <clears throat> I've learned power, right? Um, and my presence changed considerably. So, so they moved over and we drove back to the hotel and we parked in front. And again, um, it literally has a red light on the building, but we didn't, we still didn't clue into that. Even at this point, we didn't know that we were in the wrong Christina hotel until I got back and talked to my roommate about it. Um, <laughs> so we had no idea that we'd set ourselves up for failure from the very beginning. 
So anyway, you get to the hotel and everybody comes in. And even while we're walking in, the um, the soldier is saying, don't cry, Missy Missy. Don't cry, Missy Missy. Don't want no trouble, Missy Missy. Even while we're still walking into the building. This has gone on the entire time. Um, so he's coming in. I'm going in with my friend. Soldier man and immigration man are all coming in together. And we get into the room, and I remember which of the hiding places has our, our paperwork. And we go over to the paperwork, and I pull it out. I hand it to the immigration man, which, who to this point has shown he has excellent English. So I would think he could read that, right? Right. It's only a few sentences long on Cuttington University College um, letterhead. I can still see it quite clearly today. Um, He unfolds it and looks at it, and I look at his face, and for the first two years of college, freshman and sophomore years, I volunteered with the adult literacy program in the county where I was in school in Tennessee. So I've seen the look of, oh my God, I have no idea what these words say, face. Uh And I knew instantly that's what the face was. So I looked at him trying to read it, and I said, see, it says here, and I used my finger just like I would if I were teaching literacy, and Uh pointed to the word, Jennifer Sutton is a student at Cuttington University College. Please treat her with respect. Signed, Dean Brown. And and I read that out loud to him, and he said, yes, yes, I see that, you know, and and played with me. And then I said, and here's hers, and he read hers out, my friends, um, just changing the name. Uh-huh. And, um, and so, so the, the situation was resolved. But the immigration man said, can I use the bathroom? And I was like, uh, sure. And that left me and my friend in our hotel room with the taxi man who's still doing the mantra, and my friend is still crying, and... Um, the soldier man just looking all disgruntled and angry and the soldier man asked me for five dollars to go get a beer um i didn't understand that the taxi man interrupted his mantra to tell me what they wanted to show we're all friends and there are no hard feelings can we have five dollars to go across the street to have a beer i went through the roof <laughs> i was like no no, you can't have five dollars. <laughs> I should have just given them the five bucks, you know, just for yeah. the taxi man time, you know. But I was just so indignant and so angry, and and I was like, "There's no way in heck you're getting anything from me." And the the immigration guy comes out. I thank him. I say, "Get out. <laughs> We're done with this. This whole game is over." And they leave, and we close the door, and we put a chair underneath it. There's, there's like, wicker chairs there. They're not anything that would actually protect us. Um, but we felt a little better that they were gone. And as soon as they left, almost the moment they walked out, my friend stopped crying and was fine. She, like, it was as soon as the crisis was over, she was fine. And I'm the opposite. So while we were in the crisis, I was fine as soon as it was, as soon as it was over. I went into the closet and I closed the, there wasn't even a a heavy door, it was like just um, heavy fabric, and I closed that just to get as much sound protection as possible, and I screamed. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
and I cried and I just let all of those emotions out, which now as an EFT practitioner, I realize that that's part of what kept that from being stuck in my system. If you feel something, allow it to come out and then that doesn't become part of you for the rest of your life. Um, so the story's part of me and it's actually kind of a fun story to tell now, but the the fear and the anger and all those things are not tied into it anymore. So, um, so that's a really good thing. So after that, I felt better and I went to the front desk or we went to the front desk. I think the two of us went down and we asked for a different room because I just had a feeling, again, gut feeling that those three men now knew our room. I just didn't feel safe with them knowing it. We got a new room and we moved our stuff, including all my hiding place stuff. <laughs> and I put it all in one spot at this point because I, I felt okay in this new room. We slept as much as we could that night. We were both kind of freaked out, so sleeping wasn't really easy. And in the morning when we got up um, and we, were, we opened our door to let them know we were leaving and we were packed and ready to go, in came five people to clean the room. And I don't know if that's normal, but it seemed like a lot to me. So one person went in the bathroom, one started sweeping, one took the sheets, you know. One of them, while I was still just getting my stuff together, came over to me and he said, uh, what happened here last night? And kind of in Liberian English, so I, I remember it in Liberian, Liberian English-ish, which was like more like, what happened here last night? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we said, oh, nothing. Why? <laughs> and they said um, that a, a man had come back to ask where we were when we weren't in our room. They asked what had happened to us. The guys, one of the guys who was doing the cleaning was also one from behind the desk. And he said, we said, American girls go embassy. Ah. So they lied. They lied for us that we had left the building entirely. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah, so um, so they got, a, they got the $5 tip. Um. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Now yeah, what did so, your, so did you tell your parents about this story? Did they want you to come home? Oh, I didn't tell my parents. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. My mom, I don't think I've still told my mom. If she listens to this podcast, she'll be surprised. Oh, my so, goodness. <laughs> she overheard me telling part of it to my nieces this weekend, um, just pieces, because my one of my nieces is going to the Dominican Republic with school. And so I wanted to give her some tips on how to be safe in a, another country and also to say, even though I know these tips now, I didn't know them then. And these are the things I did right, and these were the things I did wrong. Um, and I'm just lucky that, you know, I still say it's an angel that, oh, the last piece of the puzzle is I had written down the, the immigration man's name on my piece of paper, on my, my own um, letter. When we got back to campus, we couldn't tell anybody that this had happened. You couldn't say anything bad about the, the ruling party. Um, that was a really dangerous thing to do in Liberia. People would end up missing who said anything against the current administration. So we mm. didn't say that a soldier was involved. We didn't say any of that happened. We just said we ran into some trouble in Monrovia and we'd like to, and this man helped us and we'd like to send a thank you letter to um, 
the immigration office to thank him. And so we did. And we got a letter back from them saying that man doesn't work here. There's no such person as that. Oh, so, how crazy. Wow. Yeah. So that's the last piece of the puzzle. So he was either just a really brave man and knew that he had to use immigration as the higher authority, or he was a really brave man that um, showed up on the earth that day from, from a <clears throat> gift from the angels, you know. I, I don't know. I, I know I've had a guardian angel my whole life because I've been protected through so many things. And maybe maybe that man is my guardian angel. I don't know. But whoever he is, I'm very, very grateful to him to this day for what didn't happen. Because yeah. I don't know what he stopped from happening because it didn't happen. And I, I do um, nonprofit work now, and we try to measure the things that we prevent and it's really hard. You can't measure how many kids you stopped from drinking alcohol because they didn't do it. Right. <laughs> and so we can't measure what didn't happen that night, but we can guess what might have happened that night. And it was none of it good. So so I'm very yeah. grateful to that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's thank you for sharing that story. It's very interesting how it um, really has shaped your work and your life in so many ways. Um, it wasn't the last kind of big and bad thing that happened to you in that country, though. <laughs> no, it wasn't. We didn't learn our lesson. We went back two weeks later and, and got in a major car accident, the same me and the same friend. And, um, and that, again, also shaped my life even further. The, the best thing, I'll, I'll just give you the quickie out of that, the best lesson out of that was that I, I learned um, community level unconditional love from the car accident. And to me, that's the biggest gift I've gotten probably in my entire life because um, seeing what unconditional love from people that don't know you and just want you to be okay, it, it's an incredible, incredible feeling. And can you talk about that? Like, how did that how did that manifest for you? Yeah, that was um, when you get in a car accident or when somebody's in the hospital in Liberia. It's your family that comes and takes care of you. It's not the hospital. And what we did, what we didn't know, also there's a lot that we didn't know. But one of the things we didn't know is that the place that there's no such thing as emergency vehicles. Um, so right after the car accident. I got my friend and another friend into a taxi cab and said, take them to the hospital. But I didn't know where that was or what that was. So that's other advice I gave to my niece is to know where healthcare is. Um, <laughs> even if you're with teachers, you should have that information. Because um, <laughs> I didn't. And so right. I said, take them to the nearest hospital. The, um, the driver took them to a, a day clinic that was run, I think, um, my memory of it is that it was a German day clinic and so it was German staff and they're not open overnight and we showed up at like one o'clock in the morning they did their best with us and they brought in their doctors and and did what they could some of the people in the car had family nearby and so that some of those family members came in and started taking care of the other people in the car but um, Laura and I didn't have any family members and we were not about to get any family members anytime soon 
the newspaper came and reported that two American students had been in a car accident. I wouldn't let them put our names in because I was afraid that my dad would see it and would um, somehow, you know, it would make the international news somehow and he would see my name and he'd be on the next plane there to pick me up. And I wasn't ready to go. So <laughs> you didn't you didn't tell your parents about your car accident either? Not until I had to, not until I realized um, a week later we were tra- well, maybe four days later, we were transferred up country to a, a new that was an actual hospital just outside of the the area of the university. It's right next to a hospital, the Methodist um, hospital up there. And that's when I found out how bad Laura, uh, my friend's <laughs> injuries were. As soon as we knew that, we started the process of getting her home, and that, of course, involved her parents. It didn't involve my parents, so I didn't involve my parents, but it involved her parents, obviously. So we got her home as quickly as we could at that point. Um, But while we were in the hospital in Monrovia, or the day clinic in Monrovia, I had no idea how bad her injuries were. All I knew was that she told me also she didn't want to leave as much as she could remember and was able to at that point. And so I said, well, don't put our names in, but you can say that we were in this car accident. And people from all over Monrovia came and brought us food and um, brought us American food, trying to make us feel welcome and safe and loved. Complete strangers, people that I don't know who they were or, or why they were there. It was completely just because they cared. And to me, that was that was totally touching. They brought us bread, which is not one of the normal staples there, and jelly and jam and things that they got at the um, Lebanese Lebanese market, because the, the Lebanese markets were where you got international foods. They brought us canned hot dogs because they wanted us to have American hot dogs. My friend and I were both vegetarian. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's the thought really that counts. Appreciated it, yeah. Yeah. So they did whatever they could to make us feel loved and safe and um, able to heal. So um, that that's one way I saw it. I also saw by staying a little longer and getting to know the villages, the the people in the smaller communities. I saw how they had unconditional love for each other as a community how they treated the elderly, how they treated the people that were differently abled, um, mentally and physically. It was all, they, especially people that were um, mentally different, they weren't treated as broken, they were treated as gifts from God, and a space was created for them to be whoever they were. It, it was It was amazing mm. to watch, so... So I saw it, me personally, with them taking care of me after the accident, and just so many gifts, so many, it was amazing. Um, And then I saw it later on the community level when I got to go into the the smaller villages, because I didn't tell my family for a very long time about any of these things, so... (laughs) Oh my goodness. I told them about the car accident. Um, after a while because I wanted to find out how my friend was doing. So I told my mom um, and gave her her mom's phone number so that she could reach out to her and find out what was happening. But I didn't tell her the extent of my injuries. I didn't tell her I didn't tell her how it happened or any of that stuff. It was also really expensive to call home, so to have any of these phone hmm. these conversations would have been 
you know, to tell them probably would have cost a couple hundred dollars. So, and and then how did you suffer your hearing loss? Was that in the accident? Well, honestly, they don't know. I I didn't know that I had hearing loss at the time. I found out in my spring break of junior year when I was traveling with two other friends, and every time I was in the back seat and they would talk to me, I wouldn't respond. <laughs> and they said, when you're in the front seat, you're part of the conversation, but when you're in the back seat, you're not. And we figured out just from that that I had hearing loss, which was interesting to discover it that way. And then when I told the doctors that, they said, well, it could be from the malaria preventive medicine, the chloroquine, the quinine-based medicines do reduce hearing. And then I had malaria twice while I was in Liberia and once when I came home from Liberia. So I took really high doses of chloroquine to knock it back each of those times. In Liberia, they gave it to you instantly because they recognized malaria in Tennessee, when you get malaria, they tell you you have leukemia and all sorts of other things. Um, <laughs> and then you get the CDC doctor up from Atlanta and, you know, it gets a little exciting. So they don't know if it was the malaria from the temperatures that I got from malaria because they go up to 106, 107, um, mm. or from the actual quinine-based medicines, or if it was from the car accident where my back got squished in unusual ways and there are some parts of my body that have no feeling, so it's possible that the connection to the hearing um, nerve got, because it's the inner ear nerves that are turned off. So um, it could be the connection to the inner ear nerves that got squashed. And then I also had a, an infection while I was there in my leg. I, I got a big gash in my leg. I don't remember how, but I did. Could have been from the car accident, I'm not sure but they treated it at the, um, the health clinic on campus and um, whatever drug they gave me, gave me side effects of the, you know, it was, a, it was an allergic reaction essentially where my chest was closing in and so basically I almost died from the medicine they gave me. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, so Jennifer. Also, yeah, you've had semester. Yes, my goodness, you, you had I mean, certainly life-changing, traumatic, terrifying events, yet to hear you talk about Liberia, it sounds like on some level you really loved it. Yeah, yeah, I did, and and I'm glad that I was well enough after the accident to stay and keep, keep going deeper and and learn more about them and me and, and just have all of those other experiences, whether it was what caused my hearing loss or not, I have no idea. Um, if I'd left after the accident, maybe it would be better. I really don't know. Because um, none of the doctors know. They say, oh, well, that's quite a list, you know. Jennifer, I just want to thank you for sharing your story. It's so interesting how you're, in a very dramatic way, the purpose of your life kind of came and found you and and you got shown all those different elements you know very early on which is really interesting because now you teach self-defense and you teach mindfulness and you teach all these things that have to do with trusting life and and um you know thinking positive thoughts and things like that whereas you know you you could have gone the other way you could have turned into a very fearful and closed off person but you didn't do that so i find that very interesting 
And also you told me that a lot of times people are coming to you for the self-defense, but they're getting this mind, body, and spirit all together. And they find that enlightening and and fulfilling. And and you said that, you know, sometimes it's their favorite part of their week. So what, is that common? People have those reactions? Is this way of thinking so uncommon in our society today? Yeah, I think so. I think that as soon as people realize that they can be in alignment with mind, body, and soul, they want more of it. And they try and figure out how to do it every day. And so I love teaching it in that perspective so that they can feel it, just have a taste of it, even if it's in just a self-defense feeling at that point, um, and then seeing how they play with it over the week. I, it's one of my favorite classes to teach is, is the self-defense because, it, because I do teach it with EFT, I do teach it with brain training, I don't just teach the how to block a front punch or how to escape a certain grab. I, I, I teach those for sure. <laughs> I want them to have the physical skills, but also the, the centering and the being awareness and having the presence because presence helps you in every area of your life. It doesn't just help you when you're in a self-defense situation. It helps you when you're getting a job. It helps you when you're talking to your kids. It helps you when you're talking to a partner about um, a big issue. If you can hold your center and really remember who you are and not fall into your fears or your triggers of things that have happened to you or that you believe could happen to you, if you can stay who you really are, enhances enhances every part of your life. So I love to teach self-defense from that perspective so that people who come to me with some a certain fear, usually that's the first class I always say what why are you here? You know, if you're here, you've got to have some sort of a fear otherwise you wouldn't be wanting self-defense. And so we start with the why are you here and each person comes with completely different why and then we we go from there and we look at where that belief might be coming from, if it's based on real experience and how to reframe those old experiences and, and how, to, how to be empowered by them instead of being frightened by them. So, so yeah, I love teaching it that way. And I think that in self-defense, in martial arts, you get there eventually. In most martial arts, you get to the mind-body-soul connection. In self-defense classes, not so much usually. But most people, um, or at least I found a lot of people, aren't willing to commit to a martial art, so they don't get to that point. Um, but if you can stay in pretty much any martial art, you'll get there. Not any, but most mm-hmm. martial arts, you'll get to that mind-body-soul connection. The reason why I love my martial art is because we teach it explicitly rather than implicitly. We actually teach, as part of our curriculum, these different pieces how to think differently, how to... I I learned my first infinite possibilities training work from Shoshin in doing visualization. We did visualization um, pretty much at the end of every class or every couple classes we would go back to that. And so I learned the power of visualization and creating the body and movement that I wanted. And then of course you can choose that to create other things in your life. So I actually learned the IP principles from my sensei. sensei. So Shoshin is your martial art. Um, can you just like uh-huh. really briefly describe what it is? 
Sure. Um, Shoshin is um, Shoshin Ryu, which is the Truthful Heart School, is how that translates. And, and Ryu, um, R-Y-U, can translate as school or stream. So it's like the, the stream of knowledge as opposed to the school of knowledge, the rigid feeling of school. Yeah. The principles behind it are how not to be hurt, how not to hurt, and how to be responsible for your own happiness and your own harmony. And so we teach those things explicitly rather than, well, we also do implicitly. People draw their own conclusions, of course. But we actually have um, Kokoro curriculum, which is heart curriculum. So um, things that help us train our heart and our brain to be in alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just a series of books and posters that we um, do throughout the belts to help us open our mind and start finding new ways of looking at things. And it, it's not a, there's no religion, there's no, it's not even so much philosophy as it is new ideas that people can then apply however they want to in their life. And for me, I've used my Shoshin my whole life, even though I stopped training when I left Alaska. I, I did my martial art in Anchorage, that's where I started it. And when I left Alaska, I was five months pregnant, and um, I trained until I left, so I was, I was really lucky to have great partners to keep me safe while I was training at five months. Um, <laughs> but I left, and I went to a place that didn't have any Shoshin, and I've tried other arts since then to try and find one that meets all of those goals for me, and none of them had the, the wrap that I wanted. That mm-hmm. They just didn't... You would eventually get the, that feeling but you had to start it as a white belt in each one and go all the way up through. But even as a white belt in Shoshin, you have that connection. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why I started teaching was because I wanted that for myself. Right. (laughs) So so now I want that and I want to give that to other people because it changed my life. I used, I used my Shoshin training, the belly breathing, the mindset for getting every job I've gotten for, for being under stress in those jobs, for getting through my divorce, through all of those things, my martial arts training, even when I wasn't practicing the physical side of it, is what got me through so much. So I'm very grateful to that, and that's why I teach it, because I know that it changed my life, and all for the better. Mm-hmm. So I want to I w- I share that. I want other people to have that. So. Yeah, that's it's it's very interesting, and it's just interesting to hear how all of this, in some way, shape, or form, stems back to that Liberia trip. You know, just the realization of the unconditional love and the the self defense element, and the you know all of it is somehow wrapped up in that. I don't know if either one of us can articulate it exactly, but it's there. Right, and I think that mostly it was that experience that made me trust that the things that now I was learning in martial arts and the things that I was learning with EFT and the things that I was learning with infinite possibilities could be true because I'd already experienced it. I'd already had a real life bright experience (laughs) that's like like a spotlight. It it was maybe an hour long, you know, that whole experience that I described was maybe an hour, but it fits with so many of the things when I say, Oh, I have choice. One, I have I have intuition. Oh, yeah, I had intuition that night. And I had um I used what skills I had, use what you have where you are, start from where you are. I all I had was that button. <laughs> and I used that. And I had my voice and I used that. You know, you use what you have at the time. 
another thing that you know you're you're taught over and over again in self-defense and martial arts is don't be where you shouldn't go well i probably shouldn't have been at the christina hotel and i probably shouldn't have been right. on Gurley street <laughs> but but now i look back and i see those lessons are all very valid and so for me it's like a it was kind of like foreshadowing more than more than pushing me toward my my life purpose. It was foreshadowing it and giving me a great story to tell as I teach. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. So it, it, yeah, it brings to life a lot of the, the concepts that I use now. Well, thank you for sharing them. And um, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I will put all of your links um, to everything you talked about on the show notes page <laughs> so that people can find them easily. And um, for everyone who's listening, my guest today was Jennifer Sutton of What If Wellness. She has a variety of classes and online offerings on her website and social pages, which, as I said, you can find on our website, readysetgrit.com. Thanks again for joining us. And please tune in again next week for more inspirational stories and tips for creating the life of your dreams. Thanks for tuning in to Ready, Set, Grit, your life on purpose with Ellen Barton. Look us up online at readysetgrit.com where you'll find daily inspiration, links to our social media, and where you can access our ebooks and online classes. Ready, Set, Grit. Inspired actions, real results.